Definitely give God all the glory for that accomplishment and that victory. And uh, pray that many little babies will be saved. Um, with that being said, we are definitely a, a church that takes preventative measures in protection of our family here. Um, just as you know, um, we do, uh, you know, we, we have those within the congregation who do carry. Um, and we believe in self-defense. And with all the chaos that's going on right now after this overturning, as you guys probably have read, I don't read a lot. Or like, I mean, I read a lot, but I don't watch the news a lot and get involved in a lot of that stuff. So I don't really – I haven't read a lot of the posts and all of that. But what I've heard is that um, there's a lot of retaliation, obviously, against all of this. So uh, for us as the body of Christ and as for a leader of this church myself, we have taken precautions – uh, to make sure that you uh, are safe and taken care of and secure uh, within the house of worship. We just want to let you know that. Um, another thing as well, um, after the service is over, I'd like you all just to be aware of you know some of the things that are going on and be hypervigilant of the things that are going on around you, uh, especially at a time like this and uh, where we are um, in our nation right now with all the things that are happening. Um, just be aware, be vigilant, uh, make sure you're watching and being careful. And, you know, as far as, you know, when you're congregating outside of the building as well, um, limit your time out there for now. Um, and just, like I said, just do everything that you can at this point. We're not to live in fear. No one's scared. I'm not scared. One of the biggest things that they like to do is to plant fear in your heart and they try to intimidate. That's, the, that's, that's their weapon and their tactic. We're not going to be intimidated. Uh, we're not going to live in fear. Uh, we're going to continue to worship, but also <clears throat> we're going to do it with much discernment. Okay, I just want to make sure that you all knew that and be aware of that, um, that we have taken precautions in protecting our flock. And with that being said, we're going to continue through 1 Samuel. Turn your Bibles, if you would, please, to 1 Samuel chapter 3. 1 Samuel chapter 3. I'll just be reading one verse today and preach from this one verse. 1 Samuel chapter 3 verse 1. And the child Samuel ministered unto the Lord before Eli. And the word of the Lord was precious in those days. There was no open vision. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today through the precious and holy, righteous, perfect blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we're thankful that you have given us new hearts and that you've given us your spirit. And you've caused us by your power to be born again. And Lord, today we ask God that you'd be honored through the preaching of your word and the worshiping of your name. And Lord, that you know that this little flock here at 116, our hearts are full of gratitude for what you are doing in this nation. In the victory of Roe uh, versus Wade, that you've overturned this, Lord, and you've given power back to the states. And Lord, this state, Lord, has declared abortion to be illegal. And Lord, with that, God, we would like to offer up our gratitude and our praise to your holy name. 
And Lord, I'd ask today that you'd move powerfully upon the hearts of your people today. Those that don't know you, that you would save them. Those that know you that may be in a place where they're just not following you, Lord. Or they've been hurt, or they've been injured, or they've been abused, Lord God. Or they have grown cold towards your word and towards you, Lord. That you would bring them back gently to yourself this morning. And Lord, for those who are courageous and living in faith, Lord God, who are emboldened with the word of God, who love you, Lord God, would be humble. Lord, but you would continue to use them for your glory, to bring your word to the world, to a lost and dying world, Lord, that we'd be a light to the world around us. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Now the boy Samuel ministered to the Lord before Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days, and there was no widespread revelation. Okay, anytime scripture reveals that God's word is almost entirely absent from his people, we can, for the most part, presuppose that some serious sin has prevailed and dominated the hearts of the people. We can assume that sin and rebellion have stolen the privilege and the blessing of the abundance of God's word declared and spoken abroad. Our text says that the word of God was rare in those days. And it seems that this stage in history, the spiritual climate of God's people had steadily declined to such an extent that there was no widespread revelation. God seemed as though he was silent. But the Lord, as we all know, is never absolutely silent. He is always at work. He is always in search of a man that will stand up and do what is right. Ezekiel 22.30 shows this. I sought for a man among them who would make a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it, but I found none. Psalm 94.16 says, Who will rise up for me against the evildoers? Or who will stand up for me against the workers of iniquity? It wasn't just that God's word was rare in those days, but it seems that there was a shortage of godly men as well. That is until the boy Samuel comes into the picture where it took a boy to do a man's job, very similar to the days of Jeremiah, when God God called him to stand up and to stand out as a child. The two are inseparable. Whenever you see a lack of the biblical word being preached, you usually see a lack of godly men because they go hand in hand, or godly women, God's people. They go hand in hand. When God is says that he is searching for someone who will stand up, God searching actually means that God is preparing. Anytime you see God searching, really that means God is preparing someone behind the scenes. God uses men as the means to declare his word to the world around us. It's always been that way, and it will always be. In Mark 16, 15, it said that Christ to his disciples said, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Christ being God could have saved the entire universe if he wanted to. 
But instead he chose the means of human beings, sanctified, set apart, born again, spirit-filled, empowered believers to take his word around the world. This has always been God's way. In Acts 1.8, Christ said, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses. That word even breaks down into martyrs. To me, in Jerusalem, and all of Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. There was a purpose to power. Our text says that the word was rare in those days. Some translations use the word precious, opposed to rare, which actually signifies the same word, but yet has two separate meanings. First, that it was uncommon. It was uncommon to hear the word of the Lord spoken. Being rare in those days, we look at the song of Hannah and the prophecy of the man of God that we see in 1 Samuel 2.27 are the only instances of prophecy since Deborah. It was extremely rare. Number two, the word precious or rare also speaks of something of the highest quality, like a rare jewel or gem when speaking of God's word. Therefore, when something no longer exists and only at certain times can be found would increase the value and cause it to be precious. Both words are used interchangeably. Whenever something becomes rare, it becomes valuable or what many would say, scarce and out of print. Well, this was the case of the prophetic word of God. It wasn't only rare, but it wasn't being published. It wasn't being spread abroad. It was literally out of print. That's a sad state of affairs when this happens to the people of God. And it can happen in any generation. The Bible says in this verse, the word of God was Indeed, rare in those days, and there was no widespread revelation. Or as another translation says, there was no vision being published abroad. The word of God uh, was rare in those days because in those days were the days that experienced unprecedented, unprecedented rebellion against God. First Samuel comes at the tail end of the book of Judges, which we know comes after Ruth. But we figure if you've ever read the entire book of Judges, you know many people even titled the book of Judges the book of failure. So here comes the tail end of that. We come into 1 Samuel, and then we, 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 we can definitely understand why the word of God was rare in those days. We can see what had happened, what had stifled the word of God from being heard in those days, why it was rare. Because there was so much ungodliness and idolatry going on with the people. That there was no one to be found. So therefore, when there's no godly men, no one to take the word of God, you see Hannah come up. She's, she rises on the scene. And then you see Samuel being prepared by God to be first in line of the prophets as they go forward. And it's extremely important to recognize this because you can see a long line of those who continually aggravated God 
with their sinful lifestyles. And then we wonder why the Word of God was silent and rare in those days, and it wasn't being published abroad. It's very simple, because no one was doing it. No one was living for, for the righteous God. No one was living for Him. No one was obeying Him. And the only prophet that God sent was a prophet to warn them that He was going to judge the house of Eli. One text, our text says that the child Samuel ministered unto the Lord. Not Hophni or Venus, not even Eli himself had the credentials like the boy Samuel. The Bible says that the boy Samuel ministered unto the Lord. For the third time, it is emphasized that, this, that Samuel ministered to the Lord. Also in 1 Samuel 2.11 and 2.18, just as Aaron and his sons did at their consecration as priests in Exodus 29.1. And just like Paul and Barnabas did before they were sent out as missionaries in Acts 13.1 and 2. We see a confirmation from God himself preparing to send his prophet forward. And the child Samuel ministered unto the Lord Eli. And he not only ministered before Eli, but he actually prophesied to Eli that he is along with his children and the nation under the judgment of God. And just take a moment and think about this before we race through this sermon. Think about this reality. Think about Samuel's position. Think about God waking him up three times. And then Eli saying, go, listen to what the Lord would have to say to you. And the Lord tells him his first assignment to a boy, is you're going to confront the high priest and tell him that he's literally the nations under the damnation of God. This is his first mission. This is his first evangelistic attempt. And God sends him basically to one, to him who is like his father. Imagine that. Imagine the intrepidation of Samuel himself just being a little boy. And God tells him, to confront Eli with this message. How is that for a beginning ministry? Think about how he broke his teeth. Basically, God tells him to call out the high priest with some terrifying news, such as this. We read in 1 Samuel chapter 3, 11 through 14. He says, Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I will do something in Israel, at which both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. Or as we would express it, it shall stun all that hear it. For I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knows, because his sons made themselves vile, and he did not restrain them. And therefore I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offerings forever. And this is what the word of God this is why the word of God was rare in those days. And it's the same reason we see this pattern throughout church history. It's not just about the word of God just being silent. It's men and women's attitude who call themselves the people of God. It's their attitude towards the word of God. That they, they, they just take it for granted. They treat it as a common thing. Or they treat it as nothing. And this is a sad state of affairs. Charles Spurgeon himself lamented the same thing in his day when he said, the state of religion in our country is low. I do not think I've ever preached with less saving results since I was a minister. And this is the case with most others. 
It is a general complaint. Ian Murray in his book, The Forgotten Spurgeon, writes on the condition of the church just prior to Spurgeon's arrival. It said that the church was not lacking in wealth, nor in men, nor in dignity, but it was sadly lacking in unction and power. There was a general tendency to forget the difference between human learning and the truth revealed by the Spirit of God. There was no scarcity of eloquence and culture in the pulpit, but there was a marked absence of the kind of preaching that broke men's hearts. You see, there's no absence of the preaching. There was no absence of worship services. There was no absence of people filling these buildings as we see all over the place. But there was an absence of power. There's a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. That's a famine in the land. Really. That's a disappearance of the word of God. Even though we have all these churches that would look as though they're of God and they're growing in the multitudes, very well could be the furthest away from God. There was no prophetic power or witness. The word had fallen on deaf ears upon a yawning church in the face of a holy God. And I think, you know, if we're we're not careful, in our day, we can become that yawning church in the face of God. We can become like this, where the word of God no longer attracts us anymore. We're no longer moved by the word of God. We have no desire for the word of God. It doesn't move us anymore. We look at it as a boring phone book. It doesn't interest us anymore. We don't get moved by God's word anymore. And that can happen because it's tragic. When that happens, then we too fall into that same place where Samuel was in his day. And perhaps the worst sign of all was the fact that few were awake to these things in Spurgeon's time. The church was outwardly prosperous enough to be content to carry on the routine of past years. One contemporary writer lamenting this dull formality observed, the preacher speaks his usual time, The people sit patiently enough, perhaps. The usual number of verses are sung, and the business of the day is over. That's it generally. No more about it. And that's sad. We never want to be that place in our life to where, where it just becomes a formality for us or a ritual to come in, do our little thing, sing our little songs, hear the word preached, go home, and then just live like the rest of the world. It's tragic. According to Josephus, Samuel had just completed his twelfth year when the word of Jehovah came to him. In latter times, this age was a critical point in the life of a Jewish boy. He then became a son of what you call a son of the law and was regarded as personally responsible for obedience to it. It was at the age of twelve that the child Jesus first went up to Jerusalem along with his parents. In the selection of the boy Samuel as his prophet, there is something painful, but likewise something very interesting as well. Listen closely. It is painful to find the old high priest completely passed over. His venerable years and venerable office would naturally appointed to him, but in spite of many good qualities, in one point he is grossly unfaithful, and the very purpose of the vision now to be made is to declare the outcome of his faithlessness. And Samuel, young though he is, his very youth, in one sense, will prove an advantage. 
It will show that what he speaks is not the mere fruit of his own thinking, but is the message of God himself. It will show that the spiritual power that goes forth with his words is not his own native force, but the force of the Holy Spirit dwelling in him. It was thus, it will thus be made apparent to all that God has not forsaken his people, corrupt and lamenting wicked, though the young priest were. You know, it's, it, you, you see the, the demise of the, of the people of God in those days and the demise of the temple and the sacrifice and the worship. And you can almost imagine the state of the people because the people were, were bellyaching to Eli about his kids being such an abomination in a temple of God, being sexually immoral with the, with the, with the temple-working women that were there as well. Just the absolute vile behavior of what was going on can literally cause hopelessness with the people abroad. This is what they're seeing. This is what they're experiencing. And then they begin to ask themselves, has God departed? Is this an Ichabod moment for us? Has the Lord departed from us? And it can get that way with us as well. When you see a departure from truth being propagated throughout many of the pulpits in our country, it can almost feel God you know, we see all of these things going on. Not just outside of the world. People are generally wicked because they're born wicked. They're born sinful. They're going to sin. They're going to retaliate against the holy God. They're going to behave like this. But when we see that same kind of behavior within the church, it makes us cringe and makes us wonder, how long, oh God, are you going to allow this to take place? The fact that there's even people out there who call themselves Christians and believe abortion's okay. Believing the murdering of the unborn is acceptable. What is that? Well, first things first, I would say they're probably not born again, but number two, I would say no one's reading their Bibles. No one's studying the Word of God. No one's in the Word. They're allowing their emotions to completely take over and occupy every decision that they think. The Bible says, And the word of the Lord was rare in those days because of the hardness of the heart among the people of Israel and the corruption of the priesthood. In the general decay of religion, prophetic communications from God had almost entirely ceased. In Psalm 74, 9, we see this as well. The psalmist cried out, We do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet nor is there any among us who knows how long. God will speak and guide when his people seek him and when his ministers seek to serve him diligently. And I would say this with each and every person in here, every Christian in here, that God will guide you. God will speak to you through his word. But we need to obey his word. We need to be those who love his word, cherish his word, honor his word, and obey his word. Two questions come to mind uh, during this, what we would call this rarity of the word of God. We got to ask ourselves this question, was the word of God rare because it was hidden and contained? Or was it rare because the people just didn't want it? Was it rare because God hid it? Or was it rare because people just didn't want it? They could take it or, or leave it. It's not a big deal. Not a big deal at all. 
In the book of Amos, chapter 8, verse 11, it says, Behold, the days are coming, saith the Lord, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, not of thirst for water, but of the hearing of the words of the Lord. There's a famine in the land, you see. And it wasn't that God's not there. God is always there. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. He's always there. It wasn't that it was a famine of God. God's always present. But it's a heart of rebellion over years and years and years of resisting God, rebelling against God, hating God, but yet professing to be of God that shuts down the prophetic voice of God. Commentator Adam Clark writes, A famine in the land is the most grievous of all famines. A famine of the words of Jehovah. A time in which no prophet should appear. No spiritual counselor. No faithful reprover. None any longer who would point out the way of salvation. Or would assure them of the mercy of God on their repentance and return to Him. This is the severest of God's judgments on this side. The worm that never dieth and the fire that is never quenched. For the people of God, that is one of the most extreme judgments that we can experience as His people. When basically the Christianity in our nation has completely dried up because we accommodate the enemy for so long within our churches. And that is the severest judgment that we can come under. That we no longer feel the sweet presence of the Almighty upon our lives. We no longer see the blessing of God upon His people in this country anymore. I mean, wouldn't we ache for that? Wouldn't we cry out for that? Wouldn't we petition the Lord to bring a revival, not just to the world and to the church, but to your own hearts, our own dead hearts, that have no desire or no love for God? 2 Timothy 4.3 says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. They're not going to take it. They're not going to endure it. But having itchy ears, they shall heap to themselves teachers in accordance with their own lust. Seems to indicate that a famine in the land and a lack of hearing the word of God came from the people themselves. A judgment upon them. That the rarity and the scarcity of the Word of God came about from the very simple fact they just didn't want Him. They wanted to worship idols. They wanted to worship other things. They loved other things. Their affections were for another. It's a dangerous place to be. Isaiah chapter 30 verse 10 says, They say to the seers or the prophets, Stop seeing visions and to the prophets. Do not prophesy to us the truth. Stop prophesying. Stop preaching to us the truth. Speak to us pleasant words. Prophesy illusions. We want to hear nice things. We want to feel good about ourselves. We don't want to hear the true prophetic word of God anymore. We'll take the famine there because we want all the goodies. Paul Washer says, False teachers are God's judgment on people who don't want God. But in the name of religion, plan on getting everything their carnal heart desires. And that's why Joel Osteen is raised up. Those people who sit under him are not victims of him. 
He has the judgment of God upon them because they want exactly what he wants and it's not God. The Bible says that there was no open vision. The commentator Adam Clark writes, there was no open vision. There was no public there was no public accredited prophet. One whom the secret of the Lord was known to dwell and to whom might have recourse in cases of doubt or public emergency. Think about that for a moment. We first see that the word of God was rare in those days, but then goes on to say there was no open vision. It's not talking just about the word of God, but he's talking about the equipment as well that is the medium and the means by which God's word is heard. That was no longer available as well. The means was gone. The godly man was gone. We could say the godly women were gone. There was a famine in the land of godliness. And it was godlessness. And that's what we see here. There was no prophet to take the word of God to the people. Because there was no one godly enough to do it. And then we see God preparing Samuel for his office. And God is starting to begin a fire through his prophet Samuel. In Jeremiah 23, 29, the Lord says, Is not my word like a fire, saith the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rocks in pieces? God is saying, Is not my word like fire? Can't you feel it? And is it not like a hammer? Can't you hear it? No, we can't feel it, nor can we hear it. We're deaf to the word of God. Our sin has deafened us to the reality of God's voice. And I believe we're not careful today. Your sin and my sin can deafen us to the word of God. And it's a tragic place to be. Jesus said in Luke 12, 49, I came to bring fire on the earth. And how I wish it were already set ablaze. Notice in Acts 3.24, says Samuel is mentioned as the first of the series of prophets. Yes, in all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. All the prophets from Samuel, Samuel's name, both as being the founder of the school of prophets and so to be the representative of the goodly fellowship and as, and as having uttered one of the earliest of what we regarded as the distinctly messianic predictions that we see in 2 Samuel in the book of Hebrews. Now we must ask ourselves the question in closing today. How does this pertain to us as Christians? Can this happen to us that the word of God has become rare in our day? Is the word of God rare to you? Personally, this morning, be honest with yourself. Is the word of God rare to you personally? Is it a rare thing to you? Think about this for just a moment. Examine your own heart and speak to yourself quietly. And this is not saying that we need a bunch of prophecy and prophets either. But that the word of God in relation to our own lives, and that would be the scriptures, the holy word of God. We don't hear a lot of this anymore. We don't hear a lot of talk about the Bible anymore. I know people preach from the scriptures. I think that's what we should, but we don't ever hear the value of the Bible, right? I mean, many of you would admit that 
we've lost the value. I'm not saying you personally, but I'm saying that many of us know what it's like to lose the value of your Bible. The Ponce Foundation gives some startling statistics about the Bible. It says of over 2 billion Christians in the world, less than 30% will ever read through the entire Bible. The fact is over 82% of Christian Americans, hear me now, only read their Bibles on Sundays while in church. This means that 18% actually read their Bibles during the week. A little over 20 years ago, Gallup released the results of a major study indicating that 86% of Americans claim to be Christian, although only 70% of these admitted to being born again, according to the biblical measure. In recent studies, the Pew Research indicates that only 25% of Americans now attend church any given Sunday, significantly down from 47% in 1990. The study also shows that in evangelical churches throughout the United States, statistics show that 36% of those who attend church weekly indicate that believing in Jesus Christ is the only true way to heaven. A shocking 57% of American Christians believe other religions can lead to eternal life. Think about that. Maybe a good idea to ask your family in church if they believe that Christ is the only way. You may be surprised when you hear. One of the main reasons why American Christians don't read their Bibles, you want to know why? Only 22% of them believe the Bible is fully inspired by God himself and written by men who are divinely appointed by the Lord Almighty. I mean, don't you actually think if you really believe that the Word of God was actually inspired by God Himself, you would read it? And being a Christian who is regenerated by the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, would have an urge and a desire to want to read God's Word? Over one in four American Christians believe the Bible to be a book written by mere men, not at all the Word of God. You know how many Bibles that each American individual owns on average? Each American, it says here, a survey showed the Bible is still firmly rooted in American soil. 88% of respondents say they own a Bible. 80% think the Bible is sacred. 61% wish they read the Bible more. And the average household has 4.4 Bibles. Think about that. See, we have Bibles. We have plenty of Bibles in our homes, stacked up everywhere, collecting dust, whatever. But how many of us are actually opening them and reading them and studying them as if it's God's Word Himself? How many of us actually approach the Word of God, as I've heard one person, one theologian say, as if you're approaching God Himself? You see, if we go long enough in this stagnant condition... How can we expect to see God move in the way that we would anticipate? It's a very sad survey indeed. Mm -hmm. 
See, the word is always there, but we do not care to read it. God was always present, but because of the people's sin, he was silent. And many of us make one excuse after another why things are so messed up in our lives, but we rarely ever pick up our Bibles. We want to talk and address and proclaim and preach all of our problems as a Christian, calling ourselves a Christian, but yet we never read our Bible. It's kind of an oxymoron. It's like, that's why God gave us his written word. So we would have that to read and to study and know how to apply it to our lives and know how to live. Spurgeon once said, a Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. Where the word of God is absent, there is danger, disaster, and ultimate failure. In its absence, as we have seen, is a bunch of failed attempts by the flesh of men. We will compensate somewhere, and it will be evident, not only in your own life, but in everyone you come in contact with. Your neglect of God's word will not only bring havoc and tragedy on your own life, but will also bring havoc and tragedy upon all the lives that are around you. Why? Because you're not being guided by the word of God. You're being guided by the flesh. And I've had moments of dryness before. I think we all have. We've had those seasons before where it just seems like you're blind to the word of God. And for some reason, it just there's no connection there. I've been there before and I hate it. And I've seen the tragic consequences of neglecting my Bible. I'm not up here saying that I just, you know, have this just... 20-year pristine record of always being in the Word, hours and hours per day. That's not true. There are times in my own life where I have seen this in practice, the neglect of reading God's Word. Or something will happen in your life and will move you outside of the realm of trusting in God anymore, and you'll start trusting everything else. And it just brings more damage and more enslavement in your life, more pain in your life. And then it seems like it's almost impossible to get back. Just the thought of it seems too exhausting. But the reality is it's not at all. It's a lie from the enemy. When you return to the word of God, it's almost like you can take a deep breath again. Because you realize God is not only sovereign, he's not only ordained all things that come to pass, but he's a loving God, and he's a patient God, and he's a long-suffering God, and he loves you. And he wants you back. Amen. That's the beauties of God. The God that we serve. He's ten, the Bible says, yes, he's just and holy and righteous. But also the Bible says that he's tender and loving and kind. And he pitieth his people as a father pitieth his child. Come back to him. Come back to his word. If you're one that's running, come back. Don't read the word of God because somehow you think you're going to get spiritual brownie points because that's not the case. If that's the case, you will quit. Read it because you literally want to hear what God would have to speak to you. You want a relationship with God through his word. In Ezekiel 7.26, it says, Disaster upon disaster will come and rumor after rumor. Then they will seek a vision from a prophet, but instruction from the priest will perish as will counsel from the elders. Proverbs 29, 18 says, where there is no vision, that people will literally cast off all restraint. 
In other words, where there's no word from the Lord, where there is no scripture in the home, when there's no Bible reading for the individual, you will, by all means, cast off all restraint. There is a restraining power in the meditation of God's word. But blessed is he who keeps the law. Now the boy Samuel ministered to the Lord before Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no widespread revelation. I'm just going to give you really three quick applications uh, before we leave this morning. Number one, stop worrying about what everybody thinks of you. That's the first one. Your audience and approval come from the Lord alone. Remember that. The approval in your audience is to the audience of one, and it's God alone. It's not what everybody thinks about you. It's what everyone says about you. It's not what your buddies are doing. Stop worrying about what everybody else thinks about you. Samuel ministered to the Lord before Eli. Remember, Samuel listened to God instead of man and confronted Eli while only being a little boy. Give you some idea he wasn't a man pleaser. Number two, the word of the Lord is rare in our days. Not in the sense of owning a bunch of Bibles, but reading it, meditating upon it, and yes, even obeying it. Get back into the word of God. You've got time. We've all got time. But it's what you prioritize. It's what's priority in your life. We've all got time. It doesn't mean you've got to sit and read your Bible three hours a day. Open up the word of God and begin to hear what God had to say to you. It will enliven you. It'll, 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 it'll invigorate you. It'll energize you. It'll add vitality to your life. You won't feel at times so hopeless and in despair and dead and bored. But you'll be alive because you'll realize that you have a purpose on, in this world. And the purpose has been planted in your heart by God alone. And number three, speak up. Samuel spoke up. And many others, including David, were influenced by his words. Christ lives. He is the living word of God. Declare his word fearlessly. Honor him, and he will, as the Bible says, honor you. Spread it abroad. Jesus said, go into all the world and proclaim or publish his gospel to the world. If it's not being published in your heart, and it's a rare thing, then it will, not, then it will be a rare thing to see you publishing something that's completely foreign in your own life. Remember God said in Psalm 94, who will rise up for me? against the evildoers who will stand up for me against the workers of iniquity. Let us not fall into complacency and indifference and callousness towards God's word. Heaven forbid that this would, would happen to the church in this country. But it starts with us. It starts with you individually. It starts in your own heart. It starts in your own home. And it starts in, in our church. Let us be diligent about God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much this morning. Lord, we ask God that you would give us a hunger and a desire for your word. Lord, we're thankful that you are God and you're always on the throne. We're thankful that you sent the Lord Jesus Christ into this world and became a man. And he bore the full weight of sin upon himself in our place. And the Bible says that he went down into the grave. And three days later, he rose again triumphantly, defeating death, hell, and the grave. Lord, cause us by your power to repent of our sin, to turn away from our sin, and trust in Jesus Christ alone. 
Not only for our salvation, but for our sanctification and for the empowerment to take His Word out into the world where it needs it the most. To give us the power not to compromise and turn back. To give us the power not to accommodate sin in our church. To accommodate the world. To try to attract other people into our church. That we would stay strong. We would stay diligent, Lord. We're a small church, but we're a strong church. And Lord, I pray that you'd continually use us for your glory. In Jesus' name.